welcome everybody. This is Charlie, and this is the um, podcast to hell and back. It's um, Wednesday, May 30th, 2018. And as usual, I'm recording this myself from uh, Northampton, Massachusetts, and I have a guest today that's in um, calling in from Seattle. Uh, And that's Natalia Garcia. We're going to get to her in a few minutes. So I just want to introduce this by making a couple of comments. Um, Those of you who listened to the three podcasts I did, the most recent three were with Melanie Harned, expert uh, in the treatment uh, of DBT and in what she developed out of DBT, DBT with prolonged exposure for PTSD treatment. Um, And one of the things we briefly touched on was a metaphor um, for coping with trauma and loss that has stuck with me, um, that uh, just the bi- biological analogy, the fact that when we have injuries uh, and they, those injuries cause wounds um, and the body amazingly knows how to heal wounds and it's such an intricate process uh, when you get down into the microscopic level that it's just like a miracle. Um, and yet it goes on and goes on, um, but sometimes uh, it doesn't go on and on, and uh, the healing process is stalled by one or another thing, and we then we need to help the healing process along somehow um, and try to establish conditions that allow the body to resume the process of healing. And Melanie talked about um, how that applies to psychological uh, traumatic experiences that we have these psychological injuries, so to speak, and uh, that um, that our body and our our body seems to know how to heal those as well. In that most traumatic events do not lead to PTSD, but they lead to some spontaneous uh, form of healing that's probably equally intricate um, to wound healing, and it goes on but that sometimes the process gets stuck, we end up with PTSD, and we have to help the process get unstuck and move forward again. Um, So I just wanted to put that first uh, on the table here because uh, I think we're going to hear more about that today and next week um, in this podcast. But um, I know personally I sustained, as probably everybody listening here has their own versions of tragedies and traumas and losses, and I, I sustained several big losses as a child. Um, in the first grade, I lost a, a friend who choked at breakfast and died. I lost a friend in third grade who died of cancer. I lost a close friend in sixth grade who died of a freak accident of electrocution. And so I certainly did not grow up thinking that uh, shit doesn't happen in life. Um, and that bad things do happen. They happen unexpectedly. They happen uh, sometimes inexplicably. Um, But I must say, in introducing Natalia, uh, I personally think I have never, not even close, had to deal with a loss of the magnitude uh, that she has gone through. Uh, It it makes it stunning, actually, that she's able to talk to us today and, and share her pathway, you might say, um, the death of one's own child uh, in an inexplicable, unexpected way. You know, so many children die in the world of, of war and famine and uh, starvation and, and, and losses and injuries of different kinds, and, and they're terrible and understandable. But every once in a while, there's one that's just completely um, mysterious and hard to understand. And Natalia's uh, son, Jackson, at age two, died in his sleep uh, in just that inexplicable way, a little over, I think it must have been a little over eight months ago, um, that, uh, uh, and I'm going to let her uh, tell you about that. And uh, uh, I want us to learn, I want personally to learn from what, uh, from how this happened, how she, how she's gone through it and how she's coped with it. Not that I think that uh, every one of us has the same style or resources. Uh, We all have our own signature for how we cope with traumatic events, but um, I do think that there's universal lessons for coping, and the more we know about them, maybe the more we can help ourselves and each other uh, in using them. So that's really the point of going 
down this road today and next time. So, Natalia, with that, um, with that having been said, I want to thank you for joining me. I think it's uh, remarkable that you're here, and I really appreciate it. Thank you so much, Charlie. And let me just start by sharing how honored I am to be a guest on this podcast. I've been listening in since Melanie Harned, who I work with, told me about it a couple of months ago, and I really love what you're doing with it. And I really appreciate the opportunity to be part of it by sharing my story. And it's a very sad one, as you've started to share, um, but I'm very interested in exploring ways to use my experience to help other people. And that's why I'm here today, trying to essentially not let my suffering go to waste, so to speak. Um, so mm. I also want to comment briefly on what you said, because I think you're right. In many ways, what I've experienced is actually not unique. A lot of people experience loss and trauma, I mean, all the time. And I think, if anything, what's unique about my story is the fact that I am a DBT therapist with a strong background in PTSD and post-trauma recovery. This is specifically what I study. And so I guess I just feel very privileged to have this, I guess, in my back pocket and feel that this podcast is actually an opportunity to share a bit about how I work to climb out of my own personal hell. Um, so I really appreciate the opportunity to, to speak with you all. Thank you for having me here. Mm. You know, I had an experience in going back and forth first in talking to you in in leading up to this and then in making the announcements, um, as you saw, in a couple formats where I let people know about what's coming. And I got uh, the date wrong of when your son passed away. And I um, and then when I, that was pointed out to me, and I realized that it actually really shook me more than, or I make mistakes all the time. It's entirely within my repertoire. <laughs> I've made that mistake. Anyone who knows me well knows that. But at the same time, it really shook me. And then I thought, why am I so shook? I thought, in a way, for obvious reasons, like, oh, my God, I didn't want to upset you. As oh. if that would upset you. Um, <laughs> and then I realized, wait a minute, this is my thing. And I wonder how many people have trouble talking with you naturally or responding to things naturally or saying things uh, to, to you naturally because it is such a profound thing that people react to. Yeah, and I think probably my friends and family can comment more on that, but I'm sure that people um, sometimes don't know what to say or how to say or have strong reactions um, talking mm. to me. And I think, I think that's also natural and part of, you know, this uncharted territory of, of what this is um, that we're all sort of stumbling along and doing our best and, and don't worry at all for getting the date wrong. You got the month right, September, so not the 1st, but the 20th. Right, September 20th. Um, yeah. And you have such a good friend because somebody reached out to me and very respectfully and kindly <laughs> let me know. <laughs> oh, thank you to whoever did that. <laughs> yeah, you're welcome. <laughs> thank you. Look, I want to ask you if you would just start by telling people more about yourself. You started by saying yeah. a little about the work that you're doing. I wonder yeah. if you could just give us a little background of who you are, where you came from, the, mm -hmm. um, you know, where where you grew up, and um, and how you ended up <coughs> doing the kind of um, work that you're doing, as well as uh, getting into your marriage and then having a child. Absolutely, yeah. So. Um, I'm a clinical psychology graduate student. I'm in my sixth year, just wrapping up here at the University of Washington in Seattle. Um, and I guess research-wise, um, I hail from UW Center for Anxiety and Traumatic Stress, which is um, my lab here, led by Lori Zollner. And uh, here we're interested in studying things about how people recover after trauma. We're interested in things like what works for whom. Um, so I've gotten a lot of training in assessing and also treating PTSD in my time here. And then clinically, I've also had the wonderful privilege of working at the BRTC through Marsha Linehan's DBT practicum. And through that, I've gotten to work with individuals with BPD, a high risk for suicide. I got to treat a couple of individual clients um, and then obviously participate on the DBT consult team and also lead an adult skills group for one year. And in fact, that was my favorite part of the whole experience uh, was the skills group. I think there's something really powerful about uh, equipping people with those essential skills and tools for getting themselves out of hell um, and using personal stories and experiences as a key ingredient for doing those groups. And I think it just is a helpful way for the material to sort of come to life. And I guess that's not too different from the goal of this podcast. Mm. Um, so that's a bit of what my work has been. And um, in terms of my you know, personal background details, 
I'm 31 years old, Latina woman. I was born in Puerto Rico. Um, I grew up in the Bay Area. That's where I've spent most of my life and came here to Seattle for grad school about six years ago. And I'm married to Brian, my husband of five years. We met in college. We've been together, I guess, almost 11 years. Um, and we had our first and only child, Jackson, about three years ago. And, and like you said, he passed away last September on the 20th, uh, just a few days after his second birthday. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, let me ask you something before we get into now that stage of the story, which is um, going to be so compelling. And um, uh, I was just in, intrigued of everything in your DBT training um, that you really liked skills group most. I, I was really happy to hear that, actually. And there's a lot of people listening that may have either uh, been in DBT skills groups uh, themselves, either as clients or as therapists or as family members. And I, I wonder if you could just share a little more. What What is it that you loved so much about skills groups? Mm-hmm. <sighs> Let me think. Um I think what I loved was, was back to that piece around just making the material come to life. There's something about skills group where it's, I mean, and I guess this is true about DBT in general, which makes it a little different from other uh, treatment modalities, but this invitation to sort of really use personal examples, personal stories um, to illustrate um, mm-hmm. difficult concepts. Um, and I think that, it was a time that I really felt, um, you know, it was hard. I don't want to make it sound like it was the easiest thing, but it was, it was a, a nice mastery experience by the end of it to feel like I could really help to get across these complicated ideas, mm-hmm. um, these different skills that are in the skills book, um, skills manual, in a way that was just really um, approachable and um, digestible. Mm-hmm. And I feel like using those stories and using client stories, their own stories, because of course it's, a, it's an environment where everybody's doing a lot of sharing, um, mm-hmm. and to really make the material come to life in a way that's, that's unique. Um, I, mm-hmm. I, I love that. I love teaching, I guess, is, is what I'm getting at. So that's yeah, well, my, you love a certain kind of teaching yeah. that involves blending the personal with, right. the, with the uh, didactic teaching. Exactly, yeah. exactly. And that, yeah. that is a special thing, and I think it does bring skills to life, and I'm not sure how people ever pick up skills if they don't get that, actually, right. by sheer fortitude, I guess. But um, <laughs> anyway, so I was interested in that. I just um, That was my first experience in DBT was doing skills groups, and mm-hmm. it was a long time ago, but I still remember <laughs> the, the original impressions. With, um, it, there were some wonderful moments. There were yeah. there were days I thought I wouldn't recover from, but there were great. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's not easy, but it's but it's very rewarding and and yeah. really meaningful work. Yeah. Yeah. So tell us about um, Jackson. Um, he was he was. I think you had told me that he was basically a healthy kid. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And then, yeah. um, so did anything happen leading up to that night in September that was made? It was kind of warning signs of trouble. No, not really. Um, he ha- was a little under the weather. Um, probably any parent of a toddler can, can relate to this, but, you know, just they're a little lethargic, a little slow, maybe not super hungry. He felt warm to the touch, took his temperature about four times. The highest they ever got was 99.1, gave him a little bit of ibuprofen before bed. I mean, it was pretty standard, just feeling under the weather, probably coming on with a daycare cold. And whether that was part of what happened or totally a coincidence, because kids are often very sick when they're in daycare and acclimating to that new environment, you know, it's anybody's guess. But that was, mm-hmm. he was a completely healthy, thriving child. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so it wasn't like you expected anything. And um, No. Yeah. And then, and then what happened? Well, I guess I can start the story a bit by putting it in context. So like I've said, he died on September 20th, which... Uh, was just after his second birthday, and also for anyone aware of Hurricane Maria, just so happened to be the exact same morning that uh, Puerto Rico was pretty much decimated by a terrible hurricane. Um, and as I've alluded to, that's where my family's from. So actually, the night before he died on September 19th, I actually remember going to sleep that night feeling um, so 
terrified uh, that some sort of tragedy could befall my family. And mm. I felt helpless. I felt um, worried and, and wondered in my mind how on earth we would survive it if something terrible happened to our dear cousins, aunts, uncles, grandparents who all live there. Um, and so then the next morning I woke up and probably six something, I don't know what time it was, and I was actually surprised that Jackson hadn't woken up yet. He was an early riser, mm-hmm. but I figured that he was just sleeping in. Like I said, maybe maybe it was a good thing. He was kind of under the weather. I thought, okay, he's getting the rest he needs. Um, exactly. So I sort of just went on with my morning, um, which again was unusual because usually I woke up to him asking to be taken out of right. his crib. So I just sort of went on with my morning for a little bit. Um, and I actually took the opportunity to call my mom and check in on how the family was doing in Puerto Rico. I was very worried. Like I said, she gave me a preliminary report that everyone was safe so far, but that the eye of the hurricane still hadn't quite passed over. It was imminent. It was going to be happening within the hour. So we were very tense. Mm-hmm. I hopped in the shower. I came out. I saw my husband and I said, is Jackson still sleeping? And he said, yeah, he's still sleeping. And I said, gosh, that's so surprising. And so we checked the monitor. There he was looking asleep. And I thought, okay, he's still sleeping. And this kind of went on for a while, getting briefly distracted, checking with my mom about our family's safety and then checking back to the monitor. Um, and about You're checking seven, not him personally, but the monitor, which so it's like a we could hear and see. So I'm looking at him, and he's what I think asleep in his crib. He so he looks totally fine. just asleep. He looks totally yeah. fine. And so I sort of you know went back and forth like that for a while. And um, by about I want to say 7:45, I started to worry. Not that something even was wrong with him, but I was worried I'd be late for work. I was actually heading to DBT consult team. Um, and I was worried that Jackson was going to be late for daycare. So we did the unusual thing of having to wake up our child, which again, Jackson's an early riser. We actually, I know parents often have to wake up their kids, but that was never true for us. So we kind of went in together and we said, okay, let's, let's go wake him up and check on him. So we go in and, um, went together and we found him dead in his crib. And it was the most horrific moment of my entire life. I can't imagine. Yeah. Yeah. And it was apparent at that point that he had died at some point in the night um, without any cry or sound because, we, like I said, we had the monitor so we could hear and see. Um, and as far as we can tell, he just never woke up because we didn't hear anything. And I have those superhuman mom ears that hear all the things. Um, mm. And it was just shocking for all the reasons that you said before that he was this perfectly normal, healthy, thriving child. He had just had his two-year well child visit like the Thursday before, it's like five oh days before. Um, yeah. So yeah, no warning, no, no warning signs at all, except that slight feeling under the weather and just thought he was coming down with a cold. But as we all know, healthy kids don't die from cold. So it's, it's unknown why he died. Did you know, did you know immediately that he was dead when you were right there? Or did you kind of double check yeah. your perceptions again and again? Or I mean, you I know, just tried to imagine. Yeah. It's a wild thing because in retrospect, I knew that he was dead the moment that I turned him over. Um, He had all the signs of having passed away. I don't know how many hours ago, but it had not just happened. um, He was um, clearly not, had not been alive for a while. Um, But it's that thing where you just cannot accept that in that moment. Um, You just can't believe it in that moment. And of course, we just sort of, were wildly you know, screaming and calling 911. And, um, you know, when I, when I was talking on 911 with the dispatcher, what I kept saying was, hurry, hurry, my son is dying. And then at some point, I think I even said something like, I mean, I think he's already dead. You know, so there was this sense of, yeah. you know, of course I knew that he wasn't alive anymore, but Ooh. there was this feeling of urgency, like, well, let's just wait and see. I, they're going to be here any second. I, they might be able to do something. And, yeah, let's you know, do we tried everything CPR, we can. All of that. Exactly. Yeah. Um, so, so it was, you know, in retrospect, interesting how long it took us to really sink in with that reality. But it's understandable, I think, where people just cannot quite accept that in that moment. So, and you, you and Brian came in, both of you, to the room. Thank goodness. We were together, yes. Yeah. yeah. So that was a good thing. That was a really good thing. I, I, I think about all the ways in which it could have been different and 
one of the things I feel grateful for. It's strange to feel grateful about any circumstance of this event, but one of the things I'm grateful for is that we were together at home. I'm glad I wasn't alone. Must be unimaginable if you were just alone or, you know, if you were just a single parent or something like that. Absolutely. And I know stories like that through connecting with other parents who have experienced a similar story, SUDC, sudden unexplained death in childhood. And, um, and, and there, are, there are other parents who have definitely done this alone, and, and it's, it's awful. What did you say, sudden unexplained death in childhood? CU? Yes. S-U-D-C, it's an acronym. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's right. And it's a category of death. It's not a diagnosis. Um, so what that means is that we don't actually know why these children die. It's actually thought to be some sort of an older version of SIDS, which more people have heard of, and infants up until 12 months old. And then right. S-U-D-C is the term that's used when the child is between 1 and 18 years old. Mm. But there's no presumption of, of knowing what happened. No, it's, just, it's, it's a category you know, of unexplained. I don't know. And thank goodness there's this wonderful uh, organization called the SUDC Foundation that was mm-hmm. created something about 20 years ago, um, co-founded by Laura Crandall. She's actually a research scientist at NYU mm. in the Department of Neurology in the School of Medicine, and she's also an SUDC parent. She lost her 15-month-old daughter, Maria, uh, about 20 or so years ago. Mm. Um, and so she's this incredible woman. I mean, she called us personally after this happened and has connected us with so many resources. And, and the foundation as a whole provides support and advocacy and research um, for families, and they are very, very dedicated to finding an answer, to help us find an answer. Um, So we're actually enrolled in their SUDC Registry and Research Collaborative, where we've Mm -hmm. donated Jackson's tissues, and Brian and I have both donated blood samples and answered a whole battery of questions, and the hope is that um, some really, you know, um, directed research in this area that we can get some answers, so... That's the hope. I'm just, I can't, I don't know how to formulate a question about this, but you know, you do research in this kind of thing. So let me think, I mean, it, and, and it isn't because I, it isn't because I'm worried that you'll be too sensitive to it. You make it obvious that it's possible to talk with you about these things. But there's, um, I'm trying to think of when people go through something like this, and when you go through this in particular, um, the shock, uh, of what happens to what your brain expects and what your your whole self expects, and that at that moment, which is unlike any other moment before or since, um, is such a shock, such a uh, huge, must be uh, just a complete change in one's biology instantaneously, somehow. And I just wonder if you can say more about that. And it's almost that if that kind of level of shock must in itself be possible to be some somewhat traumatic because mm-hmm. um, it, it'd be like having a, a blowout yeah. uh, in some biological system. Yeah, and I think that's what makes this both um, loss and trauma, right? Because we know that loss of a loved one of any kind is a very, very painful experience and what makes it beyond, quote-unquote, just a loss but actually a traumatic event is this quality you're describing about the sudden unexpected nature of it where it is mm-hmm. just totally out of the blue um, and I think that that's, that's the trauma piece of it um, and and it is a shock to your system and it's impossible to compute at first like I sort of described earlier mm-hmm. and um, yeah I just I have this this memory from that morning that it sort of speaks to, I guess, this idea that you are asking about and kind of connects with this idea of natural healing that you brought up earlier. But I remember being upstairs in our bathroom shortly after this happened. I mean, you know, of course we had call 911, all the um, police and firefighters and paramedics and Hmm. um, medical examiner, all these people in our home and family and friends rushing in. Um, It was very chaotic and and at some point, I don't know, maybe an hour after this happened, I'm upstairs in our in our bedroom bathroom with my husband alone, and I just remember just screaming over and over again, like, I can't, I can't, I can't. And there was this sense of, like, absolute rejection of mm. reality, like, this is not happening. I cannot cope with what's happening. I cannot mm-hmm. 
handle what's happening. Mm-hmm. And there was this moment that was very powerful, and I've thought a lot about it since, but as I'm telling him, I can't, I can't, I can't, there was this sort of voice in my head that sort of gently rebutted, like, but you are, like, here you are, and you're mm. doing it. And, it, and mm. it was this sort of moment of uh, surprise for me where I thought, of course, something like this, if anything like this were ever to happen, which I never expected would happen, you expect that you would just sort of keel over and die or something. Um, yeah, right. But it was this first glimpse of a moment of like, and I'm, I'm still somehow here. still living. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And like the fact that my heart was still beating and my lungs were still breathing, like my body was just pushing me along and helping me survive the unsurvivable. Um, and I think that that was the beginning of me understanding the grief process or even the trauma process as being a natural process. So I think that ties back to what you were you talking about You know, what I'm struck with there is the, <clears throat> is the, um, that you, you didn't think of it as this, but you, um, you were able to remain mindful of the fact that you were alive. Yes. Um, which sounds, of course, in some way, but I wouldn't say, of course, because I do think that it would be possible to be in that exact situation and not have that other voice occur to one to say, but I'm still here. I mean, it reminds me of all the practices that you've probably done and that people do in meditation practices or in mindfulness <clears throat> practices when they breathing in. I know that I'm breathing in and how that's the first simple exercise you learn with Thich Nhat Hanh. Breathing in, I know I'm breathing in, and breathing out, I know that I'm breathing out is such a profound exercise. And at a moment like what you were going through, it was was like, I know that I'm here, you know, thinking that I'm going to die, thinking I cannot make it, but noticing that I'm still here is a profound um, thing. And I would think some people might not actually get to the point at the beginning where they have that experience. Um, you'd have to have enough somehow presence of mind to know that. And yet it does seem like it's like if there's anything at the very beginning that's an indicator of, okay, you're already on a process of mm-hmm. natural healing. Mm-hmm. It might, that might be one of the pieces in the process. Yeah, like that, that, was, that was an important piece, and that is a great point. And I think, you know, you imagine like how on earth will I cope with this, and then you realize I already am coping with this. I'm already mm. on this journey. And I think that's been at the crux of what I've sort of learned the most through this is mm. that surviving trauma or grief or whatever we want to call this doesn't actually – require that you know what you're doing or have a plan like I did have this initial strong urge like I have to figure out what this is how long does it take what am I supposed to be doing kind of moment by moment because that's Mm -hmm. a bit my personality is to be structured and 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 clear in that way Um, but I think it was powerful for me to learn that you don't really need a plan for how to recover from this and frankly you don't need a PhD to learn how to recover from this and at the same time the dialectic because those things also helped. Um, it didn't hurt to have the background that I have to know um, these important principles could sort of guide my recovery. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think you hear these things from all kinds of people um, in their, whatever has been their life experience. There's, there's a certain wisdom about recovery that, of, from traumatic things that you find among people who've been through traumatic things. Mm-hmm. Um, that, you know, I think is worth worth sharing. I wanted to ask if you would say a little more about this really interesting thing you said about, um, mm-hmm. about the, in a way, the body, uh, you, your whole, you knowing that everybody knows, how, you know, that this is a process you go through, um, that grief or lose or loss or recovery or something is just a natural process. You don't have to go to a seminar on how to recover, but it's within your body. It's within evolution, whatever. Could you say more about what you mean about that? Yeah, absolutely. Um, so the way I kind of came to think about it as I was going through this in those very early days is that the same way that human beings are wired to love, um, 
human beings are also wired to grieve. Um, and those are two mm-hmm. sides of the same coin in some way. Um, that this is not something, like you said, you need to take a seminar in to know how to do. This is something people have been doing for a long time. Um, and that as a species, we simply have tools to be able to do this. And, um, you know, I have this uh, story about a, a friend um, who basic and I shared this at the at the eulogy when I spoke, but um, you know back when I was pregnant, I was very afraid of the birth process, and so I was in my ninth month of pregnancy talking with my good friend uh, Sophia, and um, she, what she said was, you know, I think all mothers need a sign in the delivery room that says you will get through this, like the billions of women that have gotten through this before you. Mm-hmm. And I remember sort of chuckling at that idea and also being comforted by that idea that okay. Just, you know, just because something is excruciatingly painful doesn't mean we can't get through it. In fact, we're wired and, and trained to get through that. Um, so for me, after Jackson died, that sort of came back, and I thought to myself, okay, just as I doubted my ability to get through birth, this was a reminder to me that, again, no matter how excruciating the pain, I did have sort of these natural tools or ancient tools to recover from trauma and even the most horrific of losses. And I think that that was this, again, powerful idea for me about, yes, it is helpful to have um, this background that I do have, and I don't want to minimize how important that's been in my recovery process. But there Mm -hmm. is this sense that recovering after trauma is is possible and and actually kind of the norm. Um, And it's something that does happen for most people naturally. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's not to say um, that everybody is going to have that uh, trajectory either. Um, so one thing I want to make sure to say is that just because I've been able to adapt reasonably well to the trauma doesn't mean that anyone who's struggling with their own aftermath of trauma is to blame for their particular recovery trajectory or their PTSD or depression symptoms or whatever they're suffering from. The last thing I would want to do is alienate listeners or accidentally fuel kind of unhelpful, untrue beliefs about there's something wrong with me, why am I not part of this natural recovery group? Because I think the reality is that it's never the trauma survivor's fault if they end up with PTSD or whatever you want to say. Mm -hmm. Um, The way we respond to and cope with traumas and losses, like you alluded to a minute ago, reflects so many factors like biological, social support, learn history, stigma, life stressors. And a lot of those are external or outside of our direct control. And so I do think looking back, I was lucky to be so privileged to have, like I said, the training that I have, the, the incredible social support that I have, just general stability, financial otherwise, and frankly, surrounded by a community of psychologists. All of my friends are psychologists. Everyone I work with is a psychologist. And I think um, that has really, really helped. So it's, it's kind of this 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 message I want to say is that part of this is that natural recovery is the norm and it's possible and holding up also this piece, which is that I feel very fortunate to have these extra factors that really um, made it more possible for me to take the harder, but ultimately more effective coping. You know, one of the things that it's making me think about something that I also talked with Melanie about and I, and you probably listened to it um, when she was talking about how, um, Things that are traumatic aren't necessarily just the ones that happen to you, but they can happen vicariously to you through someone else. Um, mm-hmm. Someone even learning your story could feel traumatized by your story, sure. um, I would imagine. But but then I was just thinking, processes of recovery, can, can that also be gained vicariously? Because mm-hmm. then I was thinking, when I was a kid... Um, you know, I used to read a magazine that lots of people grew up reading, lots of boys anyway, called Boys Life. Um, and it, every every magazine had, uh, I always went first to the story of a rescue um, where there was, you know, somebody was dying or something was happening and there was a boy, usually a boy scout, that then did this amazing thing or just, you know, followed his instincts and then, and I think I grew up with so many stories in my head of how you can have things get to the point of peril. And then um, there are ways out. Um, and I was always interested in that now that I think of it. And in a way, if you know that there's, in a way, the, the non, the, the part of the, what you're saying that also would apply to this is that when you study these things, when you think about these things, even if you research these things, 
what you're studying is pathways of recovery, um, pathways of how did somebody get into hell and how did somebody recover? And, and you've got a lot of stories in your head and you've got like Marsha Linehan behind you as a whole personal story and a teacher um, and all the stories that Melanie can talk from about treating trauma. So it, it tells you, wait a minute, one can get through these things. Mm-hmm. Um, every religion has these kind of stories and ways to cling to something. And I, I just was thinking about that. I mean, you, if you were a different person, you might be saying, you know, what really helped me, let's say you didn't have a PhD, you didn't go to college, but you were in a certain church growing up. You might be saying, you know, if it hadn't been for everything I learned from my church about hope and about redemption and the possibilities, you know, so in thinking about what helps people, because I was going to ask you, this is kind of the longest wind-up to a question I've ever heard, but um, that's just the way I am, and um, I try always try to accept it. I'm following you. You are? Oh, good. Yes. Thank you. Um, I, I, I wanted to ask, but I, I know there's no uh, big answers uh, immediately to this, but like, even though you were... Uh, in a way, without thinking about it, because you didn't think, oh, I'm, I'm going to live myself, live, I'm going to live my life in such a way as to be prepared for traumatic things. Um, yeah. I, and yet, if one did, if one did want to, um, you might say, build a curriculum for children and young adults for being ready for the shit that happens in life, I wonder what it would include. It might include a lot of stories of of that, um, and it might include a lot of things that that you have come to learn through your education as well. Yeah, yeah, I think that's a really interesting question, and and I think you're right about seeing other people coping with the unthinkable actually mm-hmm. might uh, transmit some sort of hope um, or belief that one can survive something like this. Um, you know, as you were even talking about that, what came up for me was thinking about, okay, unlike what you were describing with your upbringing, where you experienced a lot of these, uh, early traumas and and losses, um, you know, this was really the, the first big one for me. Um, so in some ways I'm very lucky that I can make it to 31 years old and this is the very, very first thing that just totally flattened me. Um, I've certainly had challenging struggles and stressors of, of kind of the, the normal variety, but nothing like this. And in some ways that was, again, really fortunate. Um, and in other ways it sort of was like, oh my gosh, what do I draw from? <laughs> this is a big one to be my first one. Um, and, you know, for me, I think it was my clients, like watching my clients get through so much and, and thinking about how strong they were and, and seeing people from pre to post when I would do assessments in our clinical trials. And basically mm-hmm. I was the assessor, so I would, I would ask them about the trauma and about all their PTSD symptoms, suicide, depression, et cetera. And then I would meet with them 12 weeks later at the post, um, and, oh, my gosh, they had, they had worked so hard and changed so much. Mm. And it was, it was quite surprising for me, actually, to see how much, how, how effective these interventions can be and, and how strong people can be in surviving just the most unthinkable tragedies. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and I think that for me, in some way, it was the clients themselves watching them recover from trauma was this kind of guiding light for me as I approach doing it myself when I when I thought to myself okay I need to do exposure I need to do this and that I need to challenge this kind of unhelpful belief I thought to myself well I've seen I've seen my clients do this I I can probably mm-hmm. do this too mm-hmm. um, so for me it was you know certainly friends and family who you see go through things like this but I have to say I, I credit my clients a lot with instilling me with hope that this that this stuff really works what do you think um what, what are the, when you and I first uh, talked about this, it sounded like really some things that had been somewhat the focus of your professional life and your personal learning uh, in that respect also translated over into what you've, what's helped you. And what, can you just say some things? And we also have next week to go, but uh, just talk to us some about what have been the main ingredients do you think that helped you cope with this traumatic situation over the past eight months 
Yeah. Well, I could definitely break it down, uh, DB skill, DBT skills and modules, because let me tell you, I feel very mm. grateful to have that as like a kind of structured framework for thinking through a lot of these things. Um, and I'll start with acceptance, um, mm-hmm. as we often do. Um, I think that, like I said, it wasn't something I was going to be able to radically accept the moment it happened. In fact, I did not accept it the moment it happened, nor could I, really. Um, but I think over time, I realized that that was something that needed to happen. And interestingly, um, you know, there's something that a lot of people have said to me, which is uh, the idea like no parent should ever have to bury their child. Hmm. And I think that um, it's well-intentioned and I think it makes sense that people say that. It's an effort to kind of validate or comfort our loss and our pain. And and I I know it's a well-intentioned sentiment. And at the same time, I think that that's sort of what was at the root of my suffering. I mean, a lot of things were at the root of the suffering, but that in particular, this should, like Jackson should not have died was a really, really tricky stuck point for me. Mm. And what I realized is that it was actually increasing my suffering to buy into this idea. So what I realized early on was was that acceptance was going to be critical here. Um, and I had to work to let go of this idea that he shouldn't have died. And as I was able to do that, I noticed that my suffering went down. Or as Marcia would say, turns excruciating suffering into quote-unquote just pain and Mm. I think it's really just rooted in this notion that the belief that I was owed more time with Jackson was making it worse and so shifting towards focusing on what time we did have together as being a gift and not a given was really helpful and I think the other thing with acceptance is just sometimes controversial well, given everything that came before, it sh- couldn't have been any other way or it should have been this way. And I think you know, that's I want to ask part, you, I think what yeah. you're saying right now is so, so huge that um, I want to, and maybe, maybe not much more can be said about it, but I want to ask because I think when you say, when you say this about no, no parent should have to be there, bury their child and one shouldn't have to, uh, that he shouldn't have died and you're owed more time with him. Each time you said one of those, I thought, yeah, damn it. That's true. Yeah. I mean, yeah. it's like even now, even, and I'm once, uh, I'm way removed from it compared to your situation. And I thought, wait a minute, don't go past that so quickly. Yes, you are owed that. But, um, yeah. but, yeah. but I, and so I want, and, and yet you talk about it, you're talking about something in a period of one paragraph that would be a lifetime of emotional work, um, yeah. in some ways. And I wonder how, so what I guess I want to ask is, can you say anything, was there anything that you did that's actually reproducible or, or discoverable or mentionable um, that you actually did that moved you in the direction of um, from uh, thinking, I am owed more time, to thinking, no, I'm not really owed anything. It, it, a terrible thing happened. I'm really sad. I'm, 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 it's really, it isn't a question of fair or unfair. It isn't a question of what I was owed or what I should have had. I mean, how did you move in that direction, which I can certainly see, and I would think most people could see that it would help with some of the degree of suffering, though it might actually liberate even more of a certain kind of sadness. Yeah, it's a good question. And I definitely didn't arrive at it overnight. And like, I yeah. often... Um, say to clients too, I think acceptance is something you sort of bop in and out of at times, even if you can radically accept something completely, there's mm-hmm. going to be times that you fall out of that. And that does happen to me sometimes. Mm-hmm. But I will say that in terms of, you know, what what allowed me to think in this way, um, I think it kind of goes back to some mindfulness, but noticing how I felt when I thought about it as if he shouldn't have died, like when I heard that, at the same time that it was comforting again, because I could tell someone was trying to comfort me, I just noticed my anger, just my suffering go up. And then I read this New York Times article that somebody had shared with me early on. I think the title of it is Not All Children Live. It was it was some horrible story about a, mm. a parent who was walking, I think in New York City actually, walking with their child and some sort of a brick fell from a tall place and just killed a child on the street. It was something like that. Mm. And them talking about, and the title was Not All Children Live. And I remember my reaction to that. It was a horrible story, and I felt awful reading about this this poor tragedy. And at the same time, I was like, you're right. Not all children live. 
people mm-hmm. die. And I think there's this piece about it that I just noticed how I felt, like my, what my reaction was in my body to statements like not all children live and parents should never have to bury their child. And I noticed that the suffering lifted when I sort of accepted that death, you know, we are mortal beings. And, and whatever took Jackson, that's the tricky part is I don't know what took him, but whatever took him uh, followed laws of nature, chemistry, physics. And there is a comfort in that because yeah. then if that's true, then given everything that led up to his death, whatever that was, whether in his brain or his heart or a seizure or whatever it was, then he actually, again, controversial, but should have died. And it's a really, really hard thing to stomach. And it's taken me a while to stomach that. But it's it's kind of, I think of it this way, like, I wish that whatever took him obviously spared him instead. I wish that with right. all my might. But that would be like dropping an egg off of a skyscraper and wishing it didn't break. Like something natural caused him to die. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And that helps me to accept it. And I have noticed that my suffering has gone down since. Mm-hmm. 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 I wonder if it's how different it is than um, what my mother would have said in these situations and did say in these kind of situations, which was, um, uh, I, my name was Chuck as a boy, not Charlie. And <laughs> Chuck, uh, God has a plan. We, we don't always know the plan, but you have to know that there's a plan and you have to know that, that this is, you know, and, and I have rebelled about that for about um, 60 years. Um, just thinking, come on, uh, that's just, that's just sort of papering things over. On the other hand, there's something profound there. It's just that, you know, it, it may be a different way of talking about that, that there is something about what happened and, and in that whether it's right, it isn't like there is a God necessarily of a certain kind that has a certain kind of plan, but there is a way of saying, you know, this too happened. Mm-hmm. This too happened. And the whole thing, I mean, things happen and, and we can't be in control of everything that happens. And I think it may just help let go of some of that fight that, um, uh, of, that doesn't really have anywhere to go once he's not alive anymore. Exactly. Now, the and idea I think that, that he was... should be alive is still what's left of his life. Right. Um, and I think that that's at the crux of it. It was like there's already this baseline pain of so much sadness and, so, hmm. I mean, so much pain. But then to add on to that, the fight, the fight against the reality of the situation was just exhausting me. And I think it feels automatic. It feels like something you can't turn off, but it's exercising that ability to to shift in that thinking and to, to truly radically accept it. It was it was what we describe in DBT as kind of this, this it liberates you mm. initially. It's like, wow, I can take a breath and give up that fight. That fight to rejecting reality is added on and it mm-hmm. doesn't need to be there. Mm-hmm. And that's the part that I feel freed from for the most part. Mm-hmm. Really, I've, I've said this before on this podcast. I don't know if you heard it because probably in one of the earlier podcasts um, in talking about my close friend, Cindy, who died of cancer, yes that when she, shortly before her, she died, when she uh, was sitting on the back porch of her house and with me and said, you know, I, I've spent all these 11 years thinking, why did this happen to me? Why did I get cancer? And she said, today I woke up thinking, um, why not me? Yeah. Why not me? Why should it be someone else? Why, you know, of course I got cancer or something like that. And she said, I could just tell in her face that it led it was a whole different way of reacting to it if only people could move to that through that i mean that's what we i think we try to do with our patients sometimes that are dealing with something that they're profoundly traumatized by or they've lost and they they're stuck they're stuck in it with it and um if only there were a way to help somebody get to that point and i do think that's a lot of what marshall linehan's work has had to do with is with radical Mm -hmm. acceptance and other people with radical acceptance but you're describing something that happened. What's one of the things I'll just say? Personal reaction to um, to this is it's so interesting to talk to you because you are so articulate and are able to talk about these things, and yet um, uh, I don't for a second feel like the fact that you can put these together in such great sentences and paragraphs and make it make sense. Um, 
I know you went through hell. Uh, there's a way you talk about it that it, it's clear. You refer to it, but you refer to it not from inside it at the moment. But you must still go through. I just can't imagine with this magnitude. So I just want to ask you about that because we're going to be continuing to talk also next time. And I don't know if other people listening to you have this reaction, but maybe it's just because of how articulate you are. I want to, um, I'm always thinking, no, did, did, did she go through that kind of hell that I can imagine like I would have died? And then I think, no, she did. She really did. She's just pulled something together here. Yeah. Well, I don't well, thank mean to you invalidate so for, you, obviously. But. No, it's, it's a compliment. Thank you very much. And, and, and I think you're totally onto something, which is something I've been thinking a lot about lately. And in fact, I, you know, uh, keep a website where I, I write about these things sometimes. And it's, that's the thing I wrote about most recently. And it's this idea that, um, a lot of times, you know, we ask ourselves as, as clinicians, as psychologists, well, how is somebody functioning? Like that's like the, at the crux of like what makes something a disorder versus not mm-hmm. a disorder is how impaired are they? How, how well are they mm-hmm. functioning? Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. by any measure of functioning, um, I think that Brian and I are functioning quite well. Mm. And I'm very grateful for that. I, I'm very grateful that I, you know, took a very brief leave but was able to return to work, you know, two months later or so, mm-hmm. um, that, um, you know, my, my marriage is strong, that um, I'm able to see clients again. I'm defending my dissertation in seven weeks. I mean, by any measure mm-hmm. of functioning, mm-hmm. um, we're doing quite well. And I think that's sort of what you're maybe picking up on that yeah. sounds like we're good, you know. Um, and at the same time, it's like you intuitively know um, and can tell also that there is pain beneath the surface that mm-hmm. is still there. And just because someone is functioning really well doesn't mean they're not still hurting and grieving every single day. Mm-hmm. And um, and that's very true to my experience. I feel very grateful. It's kind of a double-edged sword. I feel very grateful for how well I'm able to function and how the you know, troops around me have enabled me to function. Um, mm. And by troops, I mean my colleagues, family, friends. I mean, I, I owe a lot of that to them too. And um, and at the same time, something about functioning well sort of can have the potential to mask how much pain there still is there. Mm-hmm. Um, but but you're right that there's still a lot of pain there. And every every morning when I open my eyes, it's the very first thing I connect with mm. is mm-hmm. Jackson. You know, I think about him. Mm-hmm. And I continue to miss him. And I mean, throughout the day, I mean, it's mm-hmm. not just even that I think of him daily. I think of him hourly. I think of him moment to moment. But it's not in a way that has totally catapulted my life and turned it upside down. I mean, in some ways, it totally has turned up my, my life upside down. And in other ways, um, it's it's something that we have been able to to survive and also grow out of, um, and those are complicated feelings to, to grow out of something like this because it feels like nothing can grow out of something so horrible. Um, but things do grow out of this, and things and accepting that that's okay, you know, and that that's not a sign that that you're not missing them or not hurting or not um, loving them, but that it's okay to grow out of these things. It's complicated, but it's it's all you part know. of it. It is complicated because don't we work with a lot of people and maybe know some people that um, have been laid low by a bad experience, one or another terrible experience that they've had, and they uh, really are not functioning and um, in their life. And then, um, and then you learn when you work with them for a while that for some people it almost feels mandatory that you dis- that you stop functioning. I don't know. It's just—it's a bizarre way to put it. I don't—I don't think I'm getting quite at it, but it's sort of like as, as if, as if as a demonstration to oneself that it is as bad as I think it is. Then how dare I function? Yes. You have to exactly. allow yourself to still function and allow yourself to feel terrible. And and right. the, I, I can remember I was do I was teaching a DBT workshop in Sweden, um, at, at a soccer stadium of all places. No, it wasn't because there were 10,000 participants. Um, it was the top floor of a soccer stadium, a big fancy soccer stadium, where uh, the top floor was where they had uh, kind of a, an, a room that overlooks the stadium. And we did our training inside that room. So you're looking down. And 
I, something very bad was happening with one of my children during that time, and I was away from home. And I would, uh, I mean, it was really scary. And uh, so I would teach for the morning, and there'd be a 10:30 break in the morning, and then I'd go sit out at the stadium on the on the stands, and I would burst into tears for about 15 minutes. And I didn't want anyone to come. And um, the people who I was working with knew that what I was going through. But I said, I just need a break every, you know, during break. And then I would pull myself together and come back and teach. And then I would have lunch. And at the end of lunch, the same thing had happened. And at night, it would have. It was sort of, um, and then I would think, what's the matter with me that I can teach pretty well <laughs> while, my, while we're going through this horrible thing um, that yeah. I can't do anything about from here? But it's really, how do you function and not, fun- how do you function and also feel terrible and let yourself function is, is a skill in itself. I think you're so right about that, and I can relate so much to to that thinking. Um, and I think that's been an important one for us to to take in, which is, you know, functioning is not negating or invalidating our pain mm. because it can feel like it's mutually exclusive. It's one or the other. Um, and the reality is, like with many things, it is both. Mm-hmm. Um, you can be functioning and and experiencing pain, and thankfully, it's a pain that is not totally destroying your life in a way that, you know, you can keep your job, you can keep your relationships, keep doing mm-hmm. the things that are meaningful to you and important to you, um, but that the pain is still there and, and it doesn't mean it's not there. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Very interesting what you said about acceptance is a huge part of this is somehow being able to accept things. It just highlights, again, I think the brilliance of Marshall and Hans' work on trying to break things down in acceptance into acceptance skills to teach people because so many of these things are not easy to grab hold of. Um, but I think important and very related to it for me in the principles of acceptance is just one more thing I want to ask you about in the final minutes before we stop today is you, you've brought up several times how fortunate you were to have this community of support around you, be it family, Brian, friends, colleagues, etc. And I'm, and I've, you know, in, in every podcast I've done with someone else, uh, you know, um, Domingo Marquez from Puerto Rico and from uh, Cedar Coons uh, and in Melanie's discussions, the importance of the social fabric that somebody's part of. I, I just was thinking as I thought about what you went through and now hearing this, just thinking, you know, <clears throat> just like the by now trite saying, but profound saying of, <laughs> It takes a village that mm-hmm. it's very hard to do this. What you're describing to do this without the uh, in, in, interwoven. And this is like a loss of a whole community. This is a loss of for your colleagues in a strange way, mm-hmm. uh, for your friends, a loss for your family, obviously, um, and a loss for you. But the fact that you experience yourself as part of a larger group, as did, as did, uh, Cedar made a big deal out of this when she was talking about her loss of her sister to suicide, um, that it really helped her through um, to be back and forth interacting with supportive people. Yeah. Yeah, that has been foundational for us. Um, I think we have an extraordinary support system, which, again, I don't think I could have made it through any of this without those people. Um, And I have a lot of thoughts to share about social support, um, which hopefully we can get to next week as we continue this conversation. Um, But I think there's a way in which some pieces of social support is kind of um, a more passive experience of just like taking in what others give out. And mm-hmm. then there's this more active piece of it, which is how to shape your social support to be what you need it to be. And sometimes you don't know immediately what you need, but when you figure out what you need, how to use, I guess, behavioral principles to sort of to shape that support system into, mm-hmm. into what you need is an empowering experience. So I have a lot of thoughts to share on that. Oh my God, we've got to get to that. I'm, I've just decided to by decree, we're ending the next 167 hours, and we're starting next week's right now. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I want to go right. <laughs> I want to go right to that one. So we'll everyone on that. the phone will agree. Um, no, anyway, 
Uh, what that, this does, I do what I do want to talk to you about now, and this happened with Melanie too, is I'm um, I'm going to talk to you about whether you can go a third time, but I don't want to put you on the spot because if you can't, you can't. <laughs> but um, I'm realizing there's so there's such a a minefield here of possibilities, and and I didn't even know about that one. Um, I have a lot of interest in that and not a lot of formal knowledge, except a lot of work with families before. And a lot of people that I think listen to the podcast and support this podcast with Perry Hoffman and NEABPD doing family connections workshops is all about how to create that fabric, too. And so I want to I really want to hear that and talk with you about it. So I can't wait. Sounds good. So next week. um, Yeah, it's a it's a. Seven days from now, we'll start at four o'clock and um, just we'll continue and uh, we'll pick up where we left off as far and then whatever else comes in. And I, as I always encourage people, if they want to email me anything uh, about any questions or comments about this podcast that we can weave into next time, that would be great, too. So, Natalia, thank you so much. It's so amazing. And I, I really value that you're willing to talk. Thank you, Charlie. It's been my pleasure. Yeah. Okay. Good. Take care. See you next week. Bye-bye. Okay. Bye-bye.